fitness uh, with my basketball team and uh, was training with them as I always do. I try to get in there and st- stay young. And when doing that, a man comes over and begins taking note uh, that I'm working out with a, a lot of guys that are much younger than I am. And uh, so he thought it would be a good opportunity to drop some wisdom on me. And this is what he said. He said, you need to be careful. Yeah, you probably even shouldn't be working out with these young guys. Uh, so I laughed and I said, man, come on. Uh, I'm thinking, I'm 33 years old, man. I'm not that old. Uh, but he, he said, you know, it's just tough when you get old. Uh, y- your body starts to, starts to deteriorate. And then he goes into a whole story as a 71-year-old man about how his body has fallen apart. He's had this procedure and that procedure and this is hard and that's hard. And I was like, gosh, man, I'm sorry. Uh, and then he starts telling about his wife and how her body's falling apart and all that she's having to go through. And I'm like, brother, I am so sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm, I'm sitting here and, and I, I, you know, I'm just looking for a way to brighten up the conversation because it is, uh, it is pretty dark. And so I just asked the man, I said, well, do you have any hope for, for a better future? And uh, this is what he said to me. He said, well, I believe in Jesus, and, and I hope that one day I'll get to stand before him. But, you know, no one can be really sure that that's going to happen. Not even pastors can be sure that that's going to happen. Now, I don't like to correct older folks, um, I do believe what Paul says is right. You shouldn't rebuke older men, but you should speak to them, appeal to them as a father. And so encouragingly, I hope, I tried to tell this man, um, sir, I, I do believe you can have absolute assurance. I said, you know, as, as sure as I am that Jesus descended, died on a cross, and rose from the dead, I'm that sure that I'm going to stand before him one day. And church, I, I hope you're that sure. Uh, but, but I want to confess to you this morning, by God's grace alone, I don't doubt those things. I'm as sure of that truth as I am that I'm married to a woman named Casey. And we should be that sure. Because it's our belief, our rock-solid belief in what has been done for us that brings forth hope in us? Look at this passage this morning, Romans 5. Carlton preached verse 1 last week, but I want us to read verses 1 and 2. 2 is going to be what we're looking at today. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much that you have given us assurance, rock-solid assurance in the person of Jesus Christ who lived and died and against all odds and against Nature rose from the dead and now lives forever. God, it's through him that we have hope. And I pray this morning, Lord, that 
as I try to preach your word to your people, hope would well up in their hearts. Belief would well up in their hearts. God, you would do this through your word. We're dependent on you this morning, Jesus. Holy Spirit, have your way among us. We pray, amen. So hope, um, hope is a tricky word. We use it in many ways in our English language, and we mean a whole lot of different things, right? Uh, you've probably heard people say, I hope I win the lottery. Or young, young folks, maybe in high school, I hope I make the team. College guys, I, I hope she says yes. Married folks, I hope we have a girl. I hope you do too. Boys are very difficult. I didn't know that going in. Someone should have shared that with me. I hope gas prices don't go up anymore. Can I get an amen? Yeah. And I'm going to get in trouble for this one. Uh, I hope my wife doesn't make us late again. Yeah. Now you're in trouble too. Or like my new friend from the gym, I hope I make it to heaven. But you see, Christian hope is much different from many of the ways that we talk about hope. The reason being is because the basis of Christian hope is not in luck. It's not in skill. It's not in morality. It's not in circumstances. It's not dependent on a bad economy. The basis of it isn't good health or anything in this world No, the basis of Christian hope is God. Let me just repeat that. You're taking notes. The basis of Christian hope is God. The God of Abraham that Paul says in the last chapter brings things into existence that do not exist. This is the God who created everything we know. He's all-powerful. This is the God who has always kept his word to his people. He is truth. And it's because of this God that Paul says Abraham is able to hope against hope. Meaning, he's able to hope in what God says in the face of hopeless circumstances. And church, so are we. Because our God is the basis for our hope. And that's why Paul says, we therefore rejoice in the hope of the glory of God at the end of this verse. Now we're going to get back to that point. As you can see, it is at the end of the verse. But before we do, I want to zoom out and make sure that you see the theological structure that Paul is building. And for some of you engineers, Andrew, you'll love this. Uh, Paul has spent a considerable amount of time in Romans laying a foundation And the foundation we could say that he's been laying for four chapters is the doctrine of justification. That's the foundation he's been laying. And here's the summary of that doctrine. All humanity has been found unrighteous. All humanity unrighteous before God, but for God so loved the world, he sent Jesus to live without sinning, die for the sins of man, And rise from the dead in victory so that whoever believes in him will be justified. 
Or another way that Paul says it is they will be counted righteous before God. That's the foundation of this house. All other foundations are sinking sand, but this foundation is sure and will stand forever. Because Jesus stands forever. Paul goes on building this structure in chapter 5, verse 1, to say that since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, Carlton gave the excellent analogy of me being at war with my two-year-old wild son. He said, can you imagine the horror and hopelessness of Hudson if Corey, a grown man, wasn't at peace with his son, but rather made war against him? This is frightening, but not near as frightening, church, as the reality of God being at war against us. But that's the reality. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ has absorbed God the Father's righteous wrath against sin and sinners. Therefore, now, church, we have peace with God. That's so good. Going back to the analogy, what this means is that I'm no longer at war against my son, Hudson. I'm at peace with him. Now, does this mean because I'm at peace with my son, because my disposition has changed toward him, that now all of a sudden he is a peaceful and perfect angel? No. Oh, he should come to my house. Absolutely not what that means, and neither is that the case for us Christians. We still run into our Father's kneecap. We still fuss at Him. We still pitch fits. We still even wage war against Him with all of our sin. But now, church, as a loving Father, He holds us. He cares for us. He disciplines us. He draws near to us and never distances Himself from us. He's a good dad, even though we're still wild and crazy children. And that's what it means to have peace with God. So Paul continues with his structure in verse 2. He says, through Jesus, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So this is where we're going to dig in today, Paul's next part of the superstructure. You got justification peace with God, and now access to grace. Paul says we've obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Tons of richness here. First, the Greek word for access here in this passage brings forth the idea of not just access, but introduction So you got the idea that going along with the access piece that it's an introduction as well. So the difference, if we're just trying to help you understand this, would be um, like if you needed access to the church building, you could call me, you could come pick up my key and access it yourself. And I may give you a key of your own. And then you could access it wherever you or whenever you wanted to. Okay. But the the latter idea would be that you call me, I drive up here, I open the door for you. Okay, this word access gets to that kind of idea. You with me? So here's, here's the important application. We don't just receive our keys to grace from Jesus at salvation and therefore don't ever have to bother him again. 
No, we continue going to him again and again, day by day, moment by moment, to receive access into this grace. Now, don't miss this next part. Paul is intentionally explicit here. How is it that we go to him? How is it that we call upon him? How is it that we get him to come unlock the building for us, per se? Well, look, he says, by faith, by faith, through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith. The way we go to Jesus to receive access to this grace is by believing, church, faith. And how is it that we believe Well, later, Paul will write in Romans 10, verse 17, that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So, do you know what the lost and dying world needs? The word of Christ. They need to hear the word of Christ and believe. Do you know what the church also needs? To hear the word of Christ and believe. This is what we need. So hear me. We need the word of Christ from our pulpit every Sunday. We need the word of Christ in our songs every time we gather. We need the word of Christ in our homes. We need the word of Christ in our conversations. We need the word of Christ on our doorpost. We need the word of Christ in our devotionals. Hearing the word of Christ is essential for believing, and it's through believing Jesus that we obtain access into this grace. Way too often when we are weak in the flesh, we turn to ourselves and try to white-knuckle our way through it, right? We say, I know I shouldn't feel this way, so I'm not going to say what I want to say, even though I want to say it. I'm going to keep from giving vent to my anger. And that's a good start. That's definitely part of the battle. But that's not all of it, church. That can't be all of it. We must admit our feelings and call out for help. Too many times people think that voicing how they're feeling or admitting how they're feeling would make them culpable or guilty of sin. So rather than it voice it or admit it, they just stomp it down, right? And think, well, as long as I don't act on it, it's not sin. But can I be honest with you? That's really, really, really silly. Because how you feel matters. Way too often in the Reformed tradition, we make overstatements like, your feelings don't matter. Well, that's like saying headaches don't matter. Or sore throats don't matter. Those are symptoms that are pointing to something much more serious. And just let me say this for a second. I'm just going to pause here. I despise that much of church culture has turned into a realm where people cannot be honest about the way they feel for fear of indictment by other Christians. It's awful. Because when we're honest about how we feel, we can then work through where those feelings might be coming from. 
We can pray for one another. And check this out, church. We can speak the word of Christ to one another. You might think, well, that's not that big of a deal. Oh, it is. Church, it's here that miracles will begin to happen. Listen to me. There's a guy I used to have conversations with quite often. um, And it seemed that every time we talked, he was excited to share with me about some new miracle that he had either witnessed or performed. People's back problems being fixed. People's arthritis being healed. On and on and on. And I always listened, and I was even excited to hear of others' physical healing. But it occurred to me one day to tell this man about a miracle that trumped all those other miracles. Church, this is the miracle of new birth. And to go on with it, the miracle of transformation. This is the miracle of changed affections, changed desires, and loves. These physical miracles are great, but we know sooner or later your body will wear back out once again, right? But these other miracles, they are forever. (laughs) Just this week, Casey and I went to bed angry at one another. You're not supposed to do that, right? We did I woke up the next morning angry, and uh, I went to the kitchen, and I began making breakfast. And as I made breakfast, I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. I said, God, please don't let me be ugly to my wife and hold her in contempt when she wakes up. God, I'm so angry with her. Please, God, give me grace to extend to her. Change my heart from feeling this way toward her. I want to love my wife, God. And do you know what God did? You know what he did in that moment? Nothing. He didn't do anything. Is that bad for me to say or do you resonate with that a little bit? My wife walked into the kitchen and she said good morning and stared at me to see how I would respond to her. And while looking down at my phone, I just said morning and walked on to the breakfast table. Y'all are thinking, you should not be a pastor. Um, I know. I still felt the same way toward her that I did the night before. So I ate my breakfast a little quicker than usual, wanting to get up and get ready for work and get on my day. But we have a rhythm at our house where every morning we read Paul Tripp's New Morning Mercies. Got it with me up here. And uh, so my kids are in the habit, they fight over who's going to go get it every day and bring it to the table. One of them's already brought it to the table, and so I'm like, well, I've got to read this. And, um, and church, can I tell you, this is where the miracle happened? I, I just got to share with you this word on July 7th that changed me in a moment at the breakfast table. As God's child, you don't sit and wait for hope. No. Grace makes it possible for you to get up and live in hope. Because gospel hope is a mouthful. It includes so many wonderful provisions that it's hard to get it all in one bite. Yes, biblical hope gives you a lot of spiritual nutrients to chew on. 
Yet many believers seem to live hope-deprived lives. Perhaps one of the dirty secrets of the church is how much we do out of fear and not faith. We permit ourselves to feel small, unable, alone, unprepared, and bereft of resources. We tell ourselves that what we're facing is too big and requires too much of us. We stand at the bottom of mountains of trouble and give up before we've taken the first step of the climb. We wait for hope to come in some noticeable, seeable way, but it never seems to arrive. We pray, but it doesn't seem to do any good. Mm. We want to believe that God is there and that he really does care, but it seems that we've been left to ourselves. With each passing day, it seems harder to have hope for our marriages, for our children, for our churches, for our friendships, or just for the ability to survive all the trouble with our faith and sanity intact. We wonder, where is hope to be found? But what we fail to understand is that we don't have a hope problem. We have a sight problem. Hope has come. What, you say? Where? Hope isn't a thing. Hope isn't a set of circumstances. Hope isn't first a set of ideas. Hope is a person and his name is Jesus. He came to face what you face and to defeat what defeats you that you would have hope. Your salvation means that you are now in personal relationship with the one who is hope. You have hope because he exists and is your savior. You don't have a hope problem. You have been given hope that is both real and constant. The issue is whether you see it. Paul captures the problem this way in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. He prays, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might not yours Paul prays that we will have a well working spiritual vision system so that we will see the hope that we have been given in Christ what is this hope it is a rich inheritance Jesus died and left us a rich inheritance of grace to be invested in facing the troubles of here and now it is great power that is ours in moments where we are so weak. Hope came, and he brought with him the riches and power that he gave to you. (laughs) You see, you don't really have a hope problem. You have a vision problem. And for that, there's enlightening grace. As I read that at the breakfast table this morning, I, I, or a few days ago, I, I was just, I don't know any other way to say it other than a miracle happened. Is that okay if I call that a miracle? I was filled with anger. I had nothing in me for my wife at that moment. To love her the way that Christ calls me to love her. And in a moment from hearing the word of Christ, I was changed. My, my demeanor changed. I, I can tell you genuinely from my heart, I felt love and grace toward her. <laughs> but like me, church, we so easily forget the access we have to the riches of God's grace. We must be reminded of this daily 
In Jesus, I have access to grace. And the way I access this grace is through believing the word of Christ. And in order to believe the word of Christ, I must hear the word of Christ. This is where miracles happen. And the word of Christ has the power to bring spiritually dead to life. And it has the power to transform the redeemed into the perfect image of Jesus from one glory to another glory. Through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Man. See, this grace brings forth things that do not exist in us, like forgiveness, a heart of love, empowerment, transformation, and healing. This grace sustains us. This grace covers over offenses, brings joy and unity. It builds bonds. It fights violently against sin. It radically loves and relentlessly pursues. And this grace, church, is what makes us distinctly different from the rest of the world. Paul says it's in this grace that we stand. You see, there's no way to survive as a Christian if you don't stand in this grace. But for many of us, we stand elsewhere. It feels like a 110-degree day in the desert sometimes, right? And our body is giving out. Our mind is wasting away. Our mouth is dry. And yet right beside us is a gushing spring that we could stand in. We have access to it, church, but we don't go and stand in it. We don't for many reasons. But one I fear, church, is that there have been Bible teachers that have taught people to read God's word in a way that brings death and not life. Listen to me closely. Earlier in my life, when my marriage was struggling, like it was this past week, you know where I would turn? Ephesians 5. I would read my duties as a husband again and again and again, thinking, if I can just hammer what I'm supposed to do into my head, then I'll do it. And you know what this did? It made me absolutely miserable, and it made my wife even more miserable. You see, we definitely need instruction because we are a wayward people. But 2 Corinthians 3, 6 reminds us that we have been made ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Church, we are great. Can we admit this? We are great at being ministers of death. It comes very natural for us. People who can criticize, find faults, see what needs to be corrected. But how many people do you know that are consistently, when you have conversation with them, preaching to you and others the word of Christ? The word of Christ that says, oh, you, you feel bad? Like you can't get it right or ever change? Well, you see, it's actually worse than you think it is but I've got good news. My God justifies the ungodly. My God is near to the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit, and the lame. My God loves the outcast. Those are his people. Sinner, my God rejoices more over one sinner's repentance than he does 99 righteous people who don't need it. Oh, this world has you down? <laughs> well, take heart, because my God says that he's overcome the world. Church, we must become 
better at preaching the word of Christ to one another because Paul says through Jesus we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Our access to grace comes through hearing and believing the word of Christ. So we hear the word of Christ, we believe, and thus are empowered and transformed by grace. This is the miracle. But there's more to this verse. Paul says, and, and we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in hope of what? The glory of God. This is where we'll close today. Um, but what I want to do is I want us to walk back through verses 1 and 2 so we can get kind of a run and go at this last phrase. Paul says, we have peace with God. Because we have peace with God through Jesus, we have now obtained access into this grace. How have we obtained access? Well, through Jesus. And how do we access it? By faith. Why do we need it? In order to stand. And, Paul says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see, the Apostle Paul knows that all the transformation and sanctification that we're in right now, it's all headed somewhere. The grueling and often shameful exercise of confessing our sin, confessing our weakness, confessing our inability, the time spent crying out in prayer because we are bereft of the resources, the agonizing death to our flesh, and our very slow growth in faith, it's all meaningful. It's all meaningful. This isn't busy work that God's given us until he returns. It's not mind games that God's playing with you. No, it all matters because it's all headed somewhere. In Revelation 21, 1 through 6, God gave the Apostle John a vision of what is to come. And John wrote about it for us. Church, I don't think we, as I'm looking at this Revelation passage this morning, I don't think we know how big of a deal it is that our God didn't leave us to wonder what's next. He gave his Apostle a vision of what's to come. John writes, I then saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You know how awesome it is when those doors, when you're at a wedding and those doors burst open and you see the bride standing? It's going to be the most incredible display one day when this happened. God splits the sky and here the bride comes. It's going to be awesome. But that's what's happening. A bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. Neither shall there be crying. No pain any more. For the former things have passed away. 
And then (laughs) he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. New. Church, what John is seeing here is the glory of God on full display. So when Paul says we rejoice and hope for the glory of God, this is the fullest manifestation, the climax of what he's talking about. I'll never forget when I was in seminary and our professor took us to this passage. And uh, he asked us, he said, um, when Jesus here says that he's making all things new, what are all things Everyone in the class thought it was a trick question because this guy tries to trip us up some, makes us think. Everybody just sits quiet for a minute. What is he talking about? I don't know. Then someone was brave and someone answered and said, all things? <laughs> I was in a bright class. Um, my, my professor, he, he responded, what, what about broken relationships? Broken relationships that were unmendable here on on earth. Another student, really brave, said, all things? Professor said, what about disease-ridden bodies? Now the class is starting to get the gist. All things. What about corrupt governments? All things. What about God's children whose flesh still desires sin? All things. Church, don't miss this. Our God is at work right now. Every time you turn to Jesus and believe, you stand in his grace. And this displays his glory. This makes things new. God is at work right now making things new. And there will come a time where he completes his work. But until then, he's called us to labor with him. What about hopeless situations, Corey? What about the times I've tried and tried and tried? Continue to believe. Continue to stand in his grace. And Paul says this, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Rejoice. No matter how many steps you seem to take backward and backward and backward and backward. Rejoice. Jesus has promised you are going to make it. In fact, Scripture tells us that even Jesus himself rejoiced in hope of the glory of God. Listen to Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. The writer says, Let us run with endurance. Looking to Jesus, right? The founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, what is the joy that lay before Jesus? It's the glory of God Almighty. (laughs) And the Hebrew writer wants you to know That's why he put it in there. He wants you to know that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the throne. He's there. 
So church, don't be like my new friend at the gym and hope that you, you make it. As sure as Jesus is sitting on his throne, you will. So believe that good news and rejoice in this hope today. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much that you've given us so many wonderful truths in your word like the one today that we have, God.